You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Well, good evening. Let's, uh, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful day you've brought forth and once again an opportunity to truly be free where we can gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ to study your word and to get a much better understanding of this magnificent subject of salvation. Father, the study of soteriology is just magnificent. Because throughout it, what we have seen is how our Father in Heaven has had His hand on every single thing that's taken place in our salvation. From before the world began to real time, it was all of You. And for that, we are eternally grateful. So as we close up our study of the doctrines of grace, and specifically Calvinism tonight, uh, bless our time together. Thank you for everyone that has come faithfully. And I pray, Father, that all of us, as we leave tonight, will love you that much more. And, uh, Father, guide us, and uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit, be our teacher. We pray these things in the magnificent name of your precious and most dearest Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, folks, we come to the last letter in our acronym, TULIP. The letter P, which represents the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Now, please understand that this doctrine does not stand alone. That, that's critical to always remember that. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints does not stand alone, but is necessary, a necessary part of the Calvinistic system of theology. It really is the link that's so critical in the chain of salvation. You, you remove one link with the perseverance of the saints, and I think I said to you over and over again when we began that study, it, the doctrines fall like a house of cards. So it's a very critical, critical doctrine. Now, the perseverance of the saints is an absolute and direct result. Follow with me. An absolute and direct result of unconditional election, limited atonement, and the irresistible grace of God. Now follow with me. If God has chosen men absolutely and unconditionally to eternal life, if God's done that, and if His Spirit effectively applies to them the benefits of redemption, then the inescapable conclusion is that these persons shall be saved. The the absolute inescapable conclusion is that these people will be saved. You see, those who once become true believers have within themselves the agent of eternal life. And of course, that agent is the Holy Spirit. And since the Holy Spirit dwells within them, they are already set aside for eternity. Isn't that a beautiful and magnificent thought? Since the Holy Spirit dwells within us, 
we are already set aside for eternity. It's true that they are exposed to many trials, yes. Of course we're exposed to many trials, many difficulties. Absolutely. But you and I can rest assured that Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Period. He will be faithful to complete it. The fact is, the very presence of strife within our lives, beloved, is the very sign of eternal life and the promise of victory. The fact that we go through trials and difficulties and adversity proves that we are children of God. Let's take a look at a powerful prospect that guarantees our perseverance. The nature of the change which occurs in regeneration is a sufficient guarantee that the new life imparted shall be permanent. Now let me say that again because it's such a key element. The nature of the change change, excuse me, which occurs in all of us in regeneration is a sufficient guarantee that the new life imparted shall be permanent. The new life imparted to us through salvation is permanent. Because regeneration is a radical and supernatural change of the inner nature through which the soul is made spiritually alive and the new life which is imparted is now immortal. And since it is a change in the inner nature, it is in a condition which man does not have control. Everybody agree with that? Since it is a change in the inner nature, it is in a condition which man does not have control. Because no created creature is at the liberty to change oneself. The fundamental principles of its nature, for that is the prerogative of God, and God alone, the Creator. Let me repeat that. No created creature is at the liberty or the freedom to change the fundamental principles of its nature. That is the prerogative of God and God alone as creator. Therefore, nothing short of another supernatural act of God could reverse this change and cause new life to be lost. Does that make sense? Does everybody understand that at this point? No problem. Good to see you. Joe and Sandra, great to see you. One for you, sir. One for you, ma'am. One for you, sir. One for you, ma'am. And 
at the end, I'll get you another copy of what we're looking at tonight. So let me repeat that because it, I think it's so fundamental to understanding our security in Christ, our eternal security in Christ. No created creature, no created creature is at the liberty or the freedom to change the fundamental principles of its nature. That is the prerogative that belongs to God and God alone because God is the creator of every creature. So if anyone is going to change the nature of that creature, it isn't the creature that can do so. It's God and God alone. So if God's the agent of regeneration, which he is, and he's not going to change what he has created, the believer in Jesus Christ is eternally secure forever. Can't escape it. Turn with me so I can flush this out in Scripture. Turn to Titus chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. And I know we looked at it last week. And we seem like we always come back to the same scriptures. We do. Because the same scriptures are replete with the doctrines of grace. So Titus, chapter 3, verses 5 and 7 once again. I'm going to pick it up in verse 4. Make sure everybody's there. Everybody there? Titus chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. Starting in verse 4. But when the kindness and the love of God, notice, the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to God's mercy, He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Isn't that clear? Couldn't be any clearer. Beloved, the, the infinite, the infinite, mysterious, eternal love of God for His people is a guarantee that they can never be lost. Never. You cannot lose your salvation. Impossible. That is a doctrine of demons if you think you can lose your salvation. That is not a doctrine of the Holy Scriptures. Because this eternal love is not subject to fluctuations, but is as unchangeable as God's being. Remember Malachi 3, 6, For I am the Lord and I do not change. We call it the immutability of God. 
Romans 11.29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God's not going to give you the gift of eternal life and call you to eternal life and revoke it. It's never going to happen. You can't sin your way out of salvation. Now, I think we've already exhausted the fact that the true believer has eternal life that cannot be lost. I think I exhausted that in the very beginning when we looked at, at least if I recall, four lessons on the perseverance of the saints. But I want to end our study by saying that our eternal security is based on the fact that it has been promised to us. I want to go in a little different direction now. Our eternal life has been promised to us. In other words, our eternality is based on God's promise of eternal and everlasting life. Now let's flush that out. And we're only going to go in John's gospel. So would you jump into John's gospel with me? Chapter 4, please. John's Gospel, chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. We're looking at the last one, Perseverance of the Saints tonight. There you go. In John, chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, our blessed Lord said this, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Friends, that's a promise. We, we shouldn't have to go any further if we read that alone and recognize who's making that promise and we know that it's the Lord Jesus Christ and we know that Christ is immutable, just like his Father. He made it very clear in his promise that we have everlasting life. Now for the Arminians who we love dearly who believe you can lose your salvation, they won't say this, but they're implying that Christ just lied. What he just said here isn't true. God forbid that we ever take that position. That's blasphemy. Let's go to John chapter 5, verse 24. We're going to really bolster this position just in John's gospel alone. John chapter 5, verse 24. Mo and by the way, this is the Lord speaking again. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. This word has, has everlasting life. That's present tense. You know what that means? He already has it. Present tense 
means it goes on and on and on and on and on. It never ends. Once again, you can't be any clearer. John chapter 6, please. Verses 37 through 40. John chapter 6, verse 37 through 40. Very familiar to all of us. Here's our Lord once again. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Couldn't miss it. Here it is again. So as we keep going through this, John, it's gospel, Understand that Jesus Christ himself introduced the doctrines of grace as the first New Testament writer. And we're going to look at all of the gospel of John here at every one of these and understand who is making these promises. The very one who died for our salvation. Now, if he died for our salvation to free us from sin and to give us everlasting life, he is going to bring it to fruition. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it to the end. John chapter 6, verse 47 through 58. John 6, 47 through 58. When he says most assuredly, it also means without exception. So without exception, I say to you, he who believes in me, here it is again, has everlasting life. Present tense. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, or without exception, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has ever, or excuse me, eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate, the manna and are dead. 
He who eats this bread will live forever. That's pretty clear, isn't it? That's as clear as ice, isn't it? Let's go over to John chapter 10, please. Verse 27 through 29. I love this passage. John chapter 10, verse 27, 28, and 29. My sheep hear my voice. Stop there. Who are his sheep? Yeah. Good answer. The elect, the true believer, the regenerated, the born again. Those are his sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. <laughs> How do you escape that? You can't. I, I don't know what our Arminian friends do with such passages that we're looking at. I don't know what they do with them. But you heard me say, never build a doctrine on any obscure passage when you have so many passages which teach possibly the opposite of what somebody's trying to force feed you. It is so clear with everything we've seen so far. John chapter 11, verse 25 through 26. I think this is Jesus talking to Mary and Martha or... One of the sisters, yeah, Martha. Jesus said to Martha, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may physically die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? <laughs> Look, we're all going to die a physical death. But none of us who are born again are going to die a spiritual death. Neither are we going to fall away from our spiritual life. Neither is Christ going to let us fall from our spiritual life. Because he's the one who's holding and keeping us along with his father. Now, if you think you're keeping yourself, you're, you're sadly mistaken. You're being kept by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 12, verse 25 through 26. I'm going to pick it up in verse 23. This is Jesus foretelling his crucifixion. But Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly or without exception, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. 
If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. <laughs> Once again, how do you escape it? I don't know how to ever take this wonderful gospel and attempt to manipulate the text and say you can lose your salvation. I certainly can't do that. I certainly won't do that. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. Very familiar. He just got done saying something similar. This is Jesus comforting his apostle. This is him announcing his coming for them. In verse 1 of chapter 14, our Lord says, Let your heart not be, your heart be troubled. Start again. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God? Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Once again, it couldn't be any clearer. He's going to prepare a place for us and He's coming back to take us to that place. Nobody who's born again is exempt from that promise. No one. It's a guarantee. It's an absolute guaranteed promise. John chapter 18, verse 9. <coughs> Excuse me. Everybody there? This is our blessed Lord speaking again. What's that? Oh, it's great. <clears throat> this is in the Garden of Gethsemane. I'm going to start in verse 8. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am He. Therefore, if you seek Me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which He spoke. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. <laughs> Do you understand that we were all given to Christ by the Father? And He's going to give every single one of us back to the Father again? And the reason being is because He hasn't lost a one. So none who were predestined before the foundation of the world in real time came to faith in Christ and are now born again and regenerated, cannot and will not lose their salvation. They have eternal, everlasting life forever because of who has done the work. Now the greatest text is found in the book of Romans. And we have looked at this text throughout our study, and we're going to look at it again tonight. It's Romans chapter 8. 
And I don't think you can wear this passage out. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 39. Now let's look at this very closely. The great apostle Paul is speaking about God's eternal, unfailing purpose through the gospel. And he begins in verse 28 by saying, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to God's purpose. Who are the called? Elect. Okay. For whom God foreknew, God also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom God predestined, these God also called. Whom God called, these God also justified. And whom God justified, these God also glorified. Now look what he says. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? The apostle continues. He says, God, who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, Stop there. Who's us all? The elect, the called. Yeah, the chosen. God, who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. There's us again, the elect. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or pearl, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are count, accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What can you say against that rich passage? That a believer, the elect, can lose their salvation? Impossible. You could never read that and conclude that. I guess you could if you want to distort and, and adulterate the Word of God. But I'm not even sure that could be successful with such a fabulous passage as that. Friends, some people fall away from a profession of faith. Did you catch that? 
Some people fall away from a profession of faith. But none fall away from saving faith in God. None. Do you see the distinction and the difference of what I'm showing you there? 2 Corinthians 2.14 Now, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. <laughs> it's the only direction God's ever going to lead us. Triumph. Victory in Christ. Therefore, beloved, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God who has sealed your salvation for the day of redemption. And you grieve Him if you think for a minute you can lose your salvation. You're majorly grieving the Holy Spirit. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed. For the day of redemption. Ephesians 4.30 Now one more strong argument regarding the permanency of our salvation. The disciples were told to rejoice because their names were written in the Lamb's book of life. We could find that in Luke chapter 10 verse 20 and you can find it in Revelation 3.5. Now this book of life, this book, is a catalog of the elect determined by the unalterable counsel of God before the foundation of the world. The names of the righteous, the true believers, are found there and they're written there. But the names of those who perish have never been written there from the foundation of the world. They've never been written there. The only names written are the elect. God does not make mistakes. Again, that's blasphemy to ever think that God would make a mistake. In other words, He didn't forget to write someone's name in the book. Or He didn't write their name in the book and say, uh-oh, I'm going to lose Him and strike His name out. He doesn't make mistakes. Everything He does will come to fruition. Everything He does succeeds, including our salvation. Therefore, none of the Lord's elect will ever perish because their citizens is, citizenship is in heaven. Philippians 3.20 And because the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. 2 Thessalonians 3.3 and because the Lord knows who are His. 2 Timothy 2.19 In closing, we made it. In closing, all kinds of thoughts ran through my mind as to how to finish up our study on Calvinism. You see, Calvinism is really a systematic theology of the sovereignty of God in relation to the redemption and the salvation of God's elect. That's really what Calvinism is. And though the sovereignty of God is difficult to fully comprehend and understand for the finite human mind regarding an infinite God's purpose, we cannot and must not reject it. 
In other words, because of our inability to fully comprehend such great biblical truths, we do not reject what Scripture clearly teaches. Thus, we submit ourselves to the authority and teaching of God's Word and be content not to fully understand. Turn with me, please, back to Isaiah chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Everybody there in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. Everyone there? Isaiah 55, verse 8. For God's thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Turn over to Romans chapter 11, please. We want to look at verses 33 through 36 of Romans 11. Everybody get there. Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him? And it shall be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Folks, this is where we began our study months ago with the doctrines of grace. Reminding ourselves that our human reasoning has been tainted by sin and thereby limiting our capacity to fully understand an infinite triune God. Psalm 50, 21. And you thought that I was altogether like you. I, I keep that in the front cover of my Bible so that I can read that and remind myself all the time when I want to take something into my own hands. I read that. And you thought that I was altogether like you. He's not like us. He's past finding out. Now I'd like to share a couple more principles for application from our study of Calvinism. If the true Calvinist is a sinner who has received God's grace and therefore seeks to live for God's glory, 
then the prophet Isaiah is the perfect example of a Calvinist. To put it another way, if the essence of Calvinism is a passion for God's glory, then one could hardly come up with a better example than the prophet Isaiah. Turn with me to a very familiar passage, Isaiah chapter 6, please. And as you turn there, remember what I said. I had all kinds of thoughts running through my mind on how to finish up our study of Calvinism. And I recognized that Isaiah was a perfect example of a Calvinist. Now in chapter 6, we want to look at verses 1 through 8. This is Isaiah's vision. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood a seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the doors were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. In the simplest of terms, the simplest of terms, what Isaiah saw was a vision of God's sovereignty. That's what he got to see. God's sovereignty. Enthroned in heaven is the God who rules all things. And from his throne, he issues his royal decrees, including his sovereign decree of election. Also from his throne, God executes his sovereign plan of salvation, drawing sinners to himself by his efficacious and persevering grace. That's why it is not without reason that God is, God's throne is known as the throne of grace, Hebrews 4.16. For all the grace defined by the doctrines of grace flow from God's heavenly throne. Loved ones, the way that God makes a Calvinist is by exposing them to their sin and bringing that per person into his throne room, there to bow before his supreme majesty, showering them with his grace. And all of this is being done by his divine sovereignty without the aid of man. 
God doesn't need man. Man needs God. Sinclair Ferguson is the pastor of St. George's Church in Glasgow, Scotland. But before he returned to Scotland, he was the professor of systematic theology at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. They also have a campus in Escondido, California. To this day, Westminster Theological Seminary is still one of our healthy conservative seminaries. His students well remembered how he would begin his course on theology. He would say, and I quote, The goal of theology is the worship of God. The posture of theology is on one's knees. The mode of theology is repentance. End of quote. Isn't that good? Let me read that again. The goal of theology is the worship of God. The posture of theology is on one's knees. The mode of theology is repentance. Now another great man of God, the late James Montgomery Boyce, he was pastor emeritus at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. He penned these words, I quote, Since grace is the source of the life that is in me, and faith is a gift from on high, I'll boast in my Savior, all merit decline, and glorify God till I die. End of quote. He passed away a few years ago, one of the greatest men of God that America has produced. When he passed away, the late R.C. Sprawl said of him, God just judged America when James Montgomery Boyce passed away. That's how much R.C. Sproul loved James Montgomery Boyce. He was a Calvinist. R.C. Sproul was a Calvinist. Isaiah was a Calvinist. Apostle Paul was a Calvinist. Jesus Christ was a Calvinist. Now, beloved, Calvinism teaches that in salvation, God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. That's what Calvinism teaches. That God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And that is true at every step of the way. Because long before we could choose for God, the Father chose us in Christ. Let me say that again. Long before we could choose for God, the Father chose us in Christ. When we were unable to remove our guilt, the Son died for our sins. And when we would not come to God in faith, the Spirit of God drew us by His irresistible grace. Thus, Calvinism requires the sinner to accept God's sovereignty in salvation. Now, I want to read to you something. Two great men of God, Calvinists. Charles Spurgeon, I quote, Men will allow God to be everywhere except upon His throne. They will allow Him to be in His workshop to fashion worlds and to make stars. They will allow Him to be in His armory to dispense His alms and bestow His bounties. They will allow Him to sustain the earth or light the lamps of heaven or rule the waves of the ocean. But when God ascends His throne... His creatures then gnash their teeth. 
when we proclaim and enthrone God and his right to do as he wills with his own, to dispose of his creature as he thinks well, without consulting them in the matter, then it is that we are hissed at and men turn a deaf ear to us, for God on his throne is not the God they love. End of quote. He's right. He's right. The great theologian and scholar J.I. Packard wrote in his book Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, I quote, All Christians believe in divine sovereignty, but some are not aware that they reject it. The root cause is the same, a reluctance to recognize the existence of mystery and to let God be wiser than men. They are bound to reject the biblical doctrine of divine sovereignty and to explain away the great number of texts that teach it. End of quote. J.I. Packard was right also. I've unfortunately seen this time and time again with men and women who are believers in Jesus Christ. They want to strip God of being on his throne and having sovereignty over his creatures and creation. Now, lastly, this might rub some of you wrong, and I'm not trying to rub you wrong. I'm trying to project to holiness. Sometimes Calvinism has a stigma hanging over its head, and sometimes rightfully so. Sometimes Calvinists are labeled narrow in their thinking and uncharitable in their attitude towards those who disagree. Sometimes they have a bad reputation and sadly perhaps some of it is deserved. Now I'm not advocating unity at the expense of biblical fidelity. That's not what I'm going to advocate here. I'm not suggesting to compromise at the expense of biblical truth and orthodoxy. But may I say that there has been a combative tendency to defend Calvinism. And whenever the doctrines of grace are divorced from warm and loving Christian attitudes, people tend to get ornery. Some people seem to be overly concerned about converting people to their side of theology. Still others have memorized TULIP, but somehow seem to be missing the heart of the gospel. Beloved, the true Calvinist, the true Calvinist ought to be the most loving, gentle, and warm Christian. Not ornery, not unkind, but grounded in God's grace and thereby generous and loving in spirit. Calvinism, which is found on biblical fidelity, does not need defending. Remember that. Calvinism, which is found on biblical fidelity, does not need defending. Let me also say that God's word doesn't need defending. God's word defends itself. Calvinists want to present God's word in a loving, kind, and gentle manner, making its truth palatable to receive. That's the position we want to take. 
You don't hear me suggesting watering it down or compromising it. You hear me suggesting presenting it in a loving and warm way that people will hear you and might embrace it. The conviction to its truth is the role of the Holy Spirit. Deliver it in such a way that you can be an instrument of grace, a vessel of grace that the Holy Spirit can use. Always remember that we can't convert anybody to salvation or to to embrace the doctrines of grace. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. Our role is to present the truth lovingly, warm, and gentle to where the Holy Spirit will partner up with us and possibly bring that person to faith or to clear understanding of biblical truth. We're done. Any questions? Any comments? Any concerns? Everybody good? Okay. Let me walk you through what I'm leaving you with tonight. I gave you two things. The first thing I gave you, I titled Faith and Believing. It's a short examination of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. What I'd like to do is recommend, unless you want me to walk you through it, which I'd be more than happy to tonight, you tell me, we can walk you through it, or you take it home and you read it and study it. What it is, is I'm showing you how to apply hermeneutical principles to interpreting Scripture. Why did I use this verse? Because this verse has been the battlefield for years with people who say, the gift that Paul's talking about here is grace and not faith. They say the faith is what you bring to the table. I show you by taking you through this little quick study by using hermeneutics is that the grace and the faith are both the gifts that Paul's talking about. So you could read it on your own. You could have me walk you through it. What would you, what would you guys want to do here? Guys, don't have to be silent. You want to walk yourself through it at home and take your time? Okay. Let's do that. If you have any questions, you can obviously ask me on Sunday or you can call me. So, the last thing I gave you, I wanted you to have a copy of the Doctrines of Grace bibliography. Every single resource that I used for our study here for the last several months. And I gave you a list of the books. I gave you a list of the commentaries. And I gave you a list of the resources and study guides. And last but not least, I gave you a list of the books of theology. Any one of these resources found in this bibliography are extremely healthy, uh, outstanding. I highly recommend them. There's nothing here that I would tell you to beware of. Outstanding. One more thing that I do want to say to you is uh, 
I want to find it, the book. Marilyn's got it. It's Jeff's. Mine was the old copy. Go down under the first page under books and come down one, two, three, four, five, six items. The five points of Calvinism defined, defended, documented by David N. Steele and courtesy Thomas. My copy was so old and aged. Jeff brought a new copy. You can get it. I highly recommend it. And, I, and I'm going to tell you why. Because in it, it also recommends other books that you might want to read up on that aren't on my list. One of them is The Death of Death by uh, John Owens. I got it. I had to get it. I had to have that book. The, uh, the Death the death of the death yeah oh folks i'm just going to tell you it's outstanding i've been starting to read it the forward was written by um j.i packard who is also deceased but it's a it's an absolute wonderful treatise on the sovereignty of god in the salvation of the believer and if you know anything about the puritans they are um, thorough, extremely thorough, in fact, exhaustive. John Owens is one of those. It's exhaustive and thorough. Uh, it is Old English, but I'd, I'd highly recommend get the book. It's outstanding. He deals in detail with the argument about limited atonement. So with that, we're done. Let's close in prayer. Jeff, would you close us up in prayer tonight? Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.